Welcome to the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to every person. This Bible teaching was given in the Tabernacle in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit OceanGrove.org to learn how we are fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship, educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. This message was given by Pastor Christian Andrews in the Tabernacle at Ocean Grove, New Jersey for Bible Hour on Monday, June 28, 2021. The scripture is from Proverbs 25, James, Isaiah 6-9, Luke 6-36, 1 Peter 5-6, and Isaiah 26, verse 4. If you want to hear the remainder of the Bible lessons for the week, you can find them at oceangrove.org watch. Pastor Andrews is scheduled to speak again this coming August the 7th, 2022, in the Great Auditorium at the 10.30 a.m. morning service. Please join us and also invite others to join us. You may come and visit us live, or you may watch live online at oceangrove.org, or watch later on demand. And now, the introduction and the message. Well, Christian grew up in Middletown, New Jersey, where he spent summers at the Jersey Shore. He was a skater and a surfer, and though he loved youth group, he never dreamed he would become a pastor someday. In college, he studied physics, but before going off to graduate school, he served as a ministry intern in Philadelphia for one year. Working as a teacher's aide, he was pushed into the ministry intern uh, position of Bible teacher for eighth grade students. The experience was a first step towards God's call for him. He became a youth pastor the following year, went off to Princeton Theological Seminary to become prepared for his new path. Christian currently serves as the lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Summit. Do we have anybody from Renaissance Church here this morning? And from Park Church previously, before then, anybody from Park Church? We welcome you. Thank you for coming. Um, here in Ocean Grove, though, Christian reminds us that when he comes here for this week, he becomes our pastor for the week. So on behalf of all of us here in Ocean Grove, Christian, we say, welcome home. Thank you for that welcome. It is so good to see you all and to be welcomed like that. I have been a pastor in Red Bank for some time, and I'm a pastor now uh, in, in Summit, although our church uh, just bought a building in Springfield, so close by. But I do feel like a pastor every time that I come here, and I feel like your pastor. Yeah. I, I, it's been years that I've been coming each year. I think, I think it's maybe seven or eight years, something like that. And... What's happened for me is you, each one of you that I know, you have a place in my mind and in my heart. And, and that's, um, that's just the way God has wired me, I think. And, and God has been growing me over the years, so that's who I've become. And I love that. I love seeing people that I haven't seen for a long time. I love seeing people with a new look. Um, <laughs> that's an epic beard. Uh, but, but I mean, and I, I see you, and I, I care for you, and, and my prayer in each time that I, I'm invited back, my prayer is that God will use me uh, to, for good. And, and the way that I understand God's goodness is when God helps us grow. I, I'll tell you a few things that I have in mind when I start, and I always have this in mind. 
our standing before God as to whether we're accepted by God or not, that's settled. It, it was completely settled by Jesus' choice for us. Now, of course, our choice for Jesus matters too, but it's not even close when compared to his choice for us. So when I speak, I assume that your heart has been opened to receive God's decision for you in Christ so that you're not anxious this morning about what will happen for me? Am I accepted by God? And if you don't have a, a, a security in that, let me just start at the beginning to tell you that, dear friend, you are accepted and your work is very simply to accept God's acceptance for you. Okay, that's the first thing. And if that, at the end of my talk this morning, if there's a person here who's very uncertain about that, please grab me and, and, and we can ch chat about that a bit more. But I say that at the start because my working assumption is that you are now in the place which I think God's grace puts us in, which is to say, what now? Uh, and, and the theme for this summer, renewed, is a great theme. I love it. Uh, if you were there yesterday at the auditorium, you heard me talk about Paul's challenge to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So what I'm going to do this morning and this week is going to take that forward with a slightly different metaphor from the Bible, which is the metaphor of refinement, of being refined. Uh, my confidence for all of us is that God means to continue refining each one of us. Uh, I'm going to use a lot of scripture this morning, and there's not going to be slides, uh, but, but let's just work it following along. If you have your own Bible, you can do that. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll work at reading carefully and, and, and in, a, in a way that will enable you to grasp what's, what's there. But I want to begin with a, a very simple passage from the book of Proverbs. And it, it presents an image for us, and it's Proverbs 25, chapter 4. And I read a different version of the Bible than others. I, I read the NRSV, only because my teacher at seminary was one of the editors of the NRSV. So I felt I owed it to him. Um, I like it, and if you don't, it doesn't matter as much as some people make it seem. What matters is just that we listen. So let me read 25.4 and listen with your minds and heart opened. Okay, here it is. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. In this proverb, the smith is God. God is the one who is the creator and who is not done creating you. Uh, th thanks for saying that. C can anyone else identify right now with the need for continued creation or recreation in their life? We all need that. And the smith that is, the artisan who works with the metal is God. The metal in this proverb, that's you. And, and listen now, that means you are silver mixed with dross. Dross is minerals and dirt that gets mixed in with raw material that doesn't really belong there and inhibits the, the artisan from doing his best work with that raw material. So you are silver mixed with dross 
And what God wants, the artisan, what he wants, the creator, what he wants is to continue working with you. And in order to do that, the dross needs to be removed. And, and do you know how dross is removed from metal? Fire, right. Heat is applied. The refiner's fire is applied to that metal in order to, to melt that raw material so that the dross rises to the surface, so that the minerals and the dirt come up, and then the artisan will take that away, the craftsman will remove that dross and set it on the side, so that now there's material that can be made into a vessel. And, and here's the idea, and here's where it connects with you. There is dirt and there are minerals, that's a weird metaphor, but there are things in your life that shouldn't be there and that will inhibit God from doing his best work in you. And what God desires is to keep being at work in you. And the way that will happen is through the application of fire and heat. And do you know that fire and heat hurt a lot? But they're good. And life is filled with hurts that are not good. And you should do your best to stay away from those hurts However, the process of refining or renewal, to use the metaphor for this summer, that is a process which will hurt, but in a good way. And what I'm desiring to do this week is to hurt you in a good way. <laughs> and, and I would add this, in the same way that I need to be hurt. So there, there is, the distance between you and me is that I've been called by a community of faith to give most of my time to studying God's Word and working it, opening, opening it up for others. But that's it. That's the distance between you and me. Otherwise, we're the same. You have your own calling and your own job. This is my job. But it does not put me above you or apart from you. I'm also a lump of silver that has some dross in it that always needs to be refined. And the reason is so that I can be the vessel that God wants me to be. And it's exactly the same for every one of you. God wants you to be a vessel. And so you should be renewed, you should be refined, so that you can serve the purpose that the craftsman, the creator had in mind when he made you and saved you. Does that make sense? Yes. Excellent. So here's how we're going to be refined all week long. I've picked one small letter in the New Testament which has a, a many refining questions within it. And, and we're going to spend our time there and see if, if, if our time there can help refine us. It's the letter that James wrote. So if, if you've come from a Lutheran background, oh, you're like, what on earth is happening here? Why would we? Uh, but the letter itself, if you spend time studying it, what emerges is, is the letter is filled with questions that James puts to the reader. And if the reader will accept those questions for herself, if you will let those questions be addressed to you personally, they will burn. They will, but they'll burn in a good way. And I'm certain of this. We need to be refined, every one of us. Those of us who are young and, and have most of our lives ahead of us, uh, it would be wonderful for us right now to have some refining in our lives so that we become a vessel that's useful. Those of us who are tempted to think most of my days are behind me and maybe they really are also need refining, continued refining so that we become the vessels that God wants us to become. So before we get into the letter of James, I'm going to pray and ask for God to refine us together so that we become the kinds of people that God wants us to be. All right, so shall we do that? Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that when we gather together, as we have this morning in your name, that you are present with us in the power of the Holy Spirit to change us, to renew us, to refine us. I ask now at the start of this week of Bible Hour that each time we gather, our hearts and our minds would be open to your presence, attentive, and I ask that through the work we do in the Scriptures, mostly in this little letter of James, you would be at work to change us. If that hurts, let it be. Help us become men and women who are increasingly growing in maturity as our roots go down into your love and grace. And help us be open to your refining fire this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I assume that many of you have spent time in the book of James. If you come to Bible Hour, you're interested in the Bible, it's one of those letters that probably you've read before. And it is filled with material that is very uh, stimulating and thought-provoking. And, and what I've decided is to focus in on the questions that James puts to us. And so even though the first chapter is absolutely filled with wonderful things, we're going to start in the second chapter, where in verse 1, James puts a question to his readers. Look at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Let's stop there. Chapter 2 begins with a question which I think for a group of folks who would say, of course we believe in Jesus, is a kind of burning question. Do you really believe is the question he asks. And this morning the question for us is this, who do I really believe in? Maybe you have a very quick answer to that question and most of us who are here probably will. Of course I believe in Jesus, but here the fact that that James addresses this question to the folks that he's writing to makes it seem that perhaps it's a possibility to be a gathering of folks who are together because they want to worship God and love and grow in Jesus, and yet still there's something in our lives, there's some dross that makes it plain that maybe we don't actually really believe in the Jesus who we claim to believe in. Are you open to that possibility this morning? James was confident of it, and, and, and listen now, he had reason, he had, in a sense, authority to ask this kind of question because of who he was. Do you know who James was? That's right, he was Jesus' brother. And because he was Jesus' earthly brother, it meant that he had first-hand information about the kind of person Jesus was. He lived with Jesus. He lived through days of thinking that his brother was crazy and insane, but then he also was there after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I know that in a room with this many folks in it, there are some who are skeptical. That's fine. James was certainly skeptical of his brother. Try to imagine this. Your brother makes these grandiose claims, and, and of course, with civil ri sibling rivalry being what it is, it's probably hard to trust that your, your brother is the incarnation of the deity that made the whole world, right? <laughs> After, after the resurrection, this is also important to acknowledge, after the resurrection, most of the disciples had a hard time believing in it too. So if you have doubts, that's okay. You're in, in the company of, of those who are uh, 
who are right there in the scriptures. But, but what happens is the Spirit of God moves in Jerusalem in a way that is so profoundly transformative that James goes from being a skeptic to becoming a leader of the Jewish Christians in that city in Jerusalem. Can you imagine being him? Going from that place of not being certain to saying my entire life now has been transformed and now I have the privilege of helping others believe in Jesus and then grow in faith. That's what happened for James. But then there was persecution in Jerusalem that resulted in the dispersion. All of those Jewish Christians had to leave that city and now they were spread out all over the place. And on the one hand, this would have certainly looked to James like a disaster, but on the other hand, he also saw it for what it really was, which is a great opportunity. Do you see why it's an opportunity? If all of these people who have the light of Jesus in their hearts and in their lives stay in the same place, then there's a lot of light here and not much light out there. But, but God enables this community to see its new calling despite this disaster by, by helping James and others see that, okay, this which looks only bad could be good because now we can spread our light everywhere out here. And James sees all of these believers who were in one place, now in Cyprus and in Antioch and, and in Phoenicia, he sees them with a new opportunity to shine God's light everywhere. Just an aside, you will have experienced many things in this last year that will have felt unequivocally like disaster, full stop. But God is never undone by things which only seem like disasters, ever, never. Uh, so if you have in your own experience this disaster behind you, don't be tempted to think that that undoes God's ability to do great things. It's not true. You are still a lump of silver. I did just refer to you as a lump. You are still a lump of silver. And, and listen, the craftsman still has plans for you and designs, but it will take some burning in your life for you to become that material that the craftsman can really work with. Okay? So James sees that and knows that now that he's getting a report from what's happening out there in the communities that he's addressing, that there's need, there's need for some challenge from him to them. He's heard some reports about what's happening in their churches. And chapter 2 opens as it does for this reason. What he's hearing is making him wonder, do those people really believe in my brother Jesus of Nazareth or not? In verse 2, he unfolds, he unfolds the, the rationale or the reason for this question. Uh, what's happened is he's heard that there are acts of favoritism within their churches that reveal a lack of faith in Jesus who doesn't play favorites. Okay, before we read it, think for a moment. Have you ever experienced within a church an act of favoritism from someone that made you feel uh, hurt or put out? Yes? I see a lot of you nodding. More important from James' perspective, have you been responsible for an act of favoritism within a church that had that impact on someone else? What's going to happen all week long is we're going to be tempted to take these questions which James puts to us and apply them to someone else instead. Don't do that. Here's what he says in verse 2. Four. If a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, 
And if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who's poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, uh, stop for a moment. Apparently he's heard that in the communities that are gathering in the dispersion, there's this pattern of behavior amongst those believers where rich people are treated differently than poor people when they come to gather with others for worship. Uh, try to imagine it, right? It's time uh, to be together with the believers, to remember what Jesus has done, to pray and to sing and to listen to Scripture, just as we've always done. They were already doing that in the first century, okay? It's, it's different now in some ways, but in other ways it's just the same, okay? They didn't have air conditioning, just like we don't have air conditioning. <laughs> And, and now imagine two folks have come in, one here and one there, and everyone turns and looks, and this one is dressed in fine clothing, gold uh, bling hanging off his neck. He must be powerful and well-connected. Uh, he has influence, we can tell. He definitely has money and he's rich. But the other person who comes in is the opposite. Uh, filthy clothing, dirty, obviously poor, no influence, and then the greeters, these fellows in the back who are doing such a great job, hustle over to this side, to the one who's wealthy, and ignore the other one completely. Uh, this one, come sit in the front pew. No one's there. No one ever sits there. <laughs> come up here. But then to the other one, you know what? You can stand in the back. In, in the Greek here, this is stunning, um, where it says, uh, sit at my feet. The Greek is literally, sit under my footstool. It's meant to convey a tremendous lack of respect, no dignity at all for that other person. Do you know this still happens in communities of faith? Maybe not based on rich or poor. Maybe there are other distinguishing features that we observe that cause us to treat people who visit differently. And what, what James says in verse 4, here's the burning question, look at it. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The answer to his question there is yes, you have. Behaving like this, distributing respect according to perceived financial worth in the church reveals a kind of thinking which is evil. And, and again, Maybe in your community or in our broader church, the distinguishing features that we use to dole out respect differently are not exactly poverty and riches, but whatever they are, they deserve the same question which James asks here, which is, have you not become judges with evil thoughts with the way that you favor some over against others? Maybe it's people who have orthodox faith, that is, right ways of, of thinking about the faith, as opposed to heterodox ways of thinking about the faith, wrong ways of thinking. Please understand me as a person who's dedicated himself to working at trying to grasp the right way of thinking about faith. I would never say that right and wrong in matters of doctrine are unimportant. I couldn't be the person I am if I believed that. However, we have a way of distributing respect to people who come into our assemblies based on our perception of whether they have the right ideas about faith or the wrong ideas about faith. Don't we? And maybe you're like, no, nah, we don't care much about faith. How about politics? Right? Who they vote for and support. 
or their outlook on the ethical issues which deeply divide us as Christians. I spoke about some of them yesterday here. Sexual ethics is a massive one, dividing churches up. It's really threatening the Methodist church right now. Uh, your understanding of, of racial divides and whether there, there needs to be a reckoning with our own country's history with race or not. Those are issues which divide people up. Now, I would never say there's not a right or wrong way to think about any of these issues, but th I would say, as James does, there is a right and a wrong way to label and dismiss people based on your perception of which side they fall on. And the question, this is what's remarkable about James. The favoritism which he observes makes him ask this particular question uh, of the people who are gathered in the communities of faith. It is, who do you really believe in? Do you see how deep that question goes? It's, it's not, are you going to finally change your behavior when it comes to these divisive issues? That's an important question too, but it's not the question. The question is much deeper than that. And it's a question about who you really believe in. And it's a question that all of us, especially those of us who are confident that we have the answer, we believe in Jesus. We need to ask that of ourselves. There are three reasons which come next in, in James's letter for why he asks this question about their favoritism. So he reasons to them from three different perspectives that this favoritism of theirs it reveals a need to reconsider who they believe in. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Actually, before I continue, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt myself like that. If you, <laughs> if you have the NIV, does it say, listen, beloved brothers? What does it say? My dear brothers. Okay, so in Greek, the word is adelphos. And in, in, in Attic Greek, adelphos was the word which referred to any collection of individuals whatsoever, whether it was comprised of men and women, it was always Adelphos. And some translators, they still translate that word brothers, but now in our day, brothers tends to indicate a gathering with, with men only. And that's not, that's misleading. It's one of the reasons I like the NRSV. It says brothers and sisters because James would have certainly envisioned in the people he addressed both men and women. So far, so good? It's also important that the word beloved is there. James puts these burning questions to these men and women because he loves them and because he believes they are beloved by God. And so that's the foundation for these questions coming to you. It's not that the verdict is still out as to whether you personally are loved by God. Not at all. That's been settled. You are beloved. And so now it's time for you, brothers and sisters, uh, to put yourself in the position to, to receive these questions. Here's what he says in 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are this first vantage point from which James considers their behavior is a theological vantage point. Theological meaning it has to do with our understanding of who God is. Do you notice that what he begins with is a statement about who God is? Your behavior ought to reflect the reality of who God is. Their behavior here does not reflect that reality because God, according to James, has chosen the poor. Do you see it there? Because God has chosen the poor, 
you also are constrained to certain choices because your choices as a follower of Jesus should conform to what God has chosen. God has chosen to uh, regard the poor with special dignity, but you, James says, have chosen the rich, the ones whom God honors, you dishonor. When you treat the poor with contempt and the rich with special favor, you demonstrate that your values are at odds with God's values, as if you are free to determine how to value people based on their economic worth instead of how God has chosen to value those people. And so no one who believes in Jesus, no one who believes in Jesus is free to, to choose to replace God's values with her own values. And that's the first reason why these folks need to put this question to themselves. Who do I really believe in? When we, have, have, we, when we make the decision to put our values above God's values, we're saying we don't really believe in God. We believe in ourselves. The second vantage point from which James views their behavior is it's a bit more direct. It's practical. He, he views it from the practical perspective. Look at verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, this is the second half of verse 5. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? In the Middle East, during the first century, it is well known that wealthy landowners were notoriously oppressive. They used their money to manipulate people who didn't own land, and they purchased justice in the court, and they were generally no friends of the followers of Jesus. It's well documented historically. And yet, the believers to whom Jesus, uh, who Jesus gathered and to whom James writes fall all over themselves to make a good impression on the rich. They pander to them. They fall down when they arrive just to try to give them honor. From a purely practical standpoint, this behavior is absurd. Do you think there are any similarities in our own day between then and how we tend to regard those who are wealthy and powerful with special respect for no reason other than their wealth and power? Yes or no? It is. When you see someone wealthy and powerful in real life, don't you kind of want to be near them and talk to them and, and make friends with them? Do you or not? Some people are like, no. Well, a lot of us are, are like, yes. We say no now, but you watch when that rich or powerful person walks in, how everybody wants to be near them and be seen by them and talk to them. And yet the truth is, not all rich and powerful people, but, but many, if not most, became that way by embodying values that have nothing to do with our King Jesus whatsoever. I know this. I know that uh, churches in the city, in New York City, they like to just sort of casually mention that there's a famous person who comes to their church. Right? Right? Uh, trust me, as a pastor who now and then has someone who's nearly famous come in the church building, it does something in us that from a practical standpoint is absurd. Really, from, from the practical viewpoint, we don't recognize how foolish our way of valuing some people over others really is, especially, especially, and this is the heart of it, especially given who we say we believe in. That's the practical perspective. There's a one last perspective that James uses. It's the scriptural perspective in verse 8. He says this, You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are condemned by the law as transgressors. This third perspective works really well at Bible Hour because here's where James says, not only from a theological perspective or, and also from a practical perspective, but from a biblical perspective, your behavior doesn't make sense. The royal law that he refers to, which is the law of love, that the most important thing is to love God and neighbor. Anyone know who taught that royal law? Help me here. Jesus did, right. James has heard, has heard his own brother say this. James remembers hearing Jesus say it before he was believer, a believer. I'm sure James heard his brother say, the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor. In his mind, it was like, well, yeah, but not in these areas of life. And after all, not those neighbors because they're awful people. But after James was renewed in his own heart by the spirit of his resurrected brother, now he knew the most important thing is to love God. And that also means loving every person you meet. And so when he hears that the people in the communities that I know out there are showing favoritism, to the rich over the poor, he's thinking they're not following the royal law of Scripture. They're not loving every person. They're not loving their neighbors as themselves. Anyone who so blatantly contradicts God's word in Scripture shows that their belief is not in Jesus. They believe in someone else instead. And we're going to pause here to highlight the principle which is beneath what James writes. And if you're a note-taker, here's, here's where you want to write this down. It's a very important principle. It's going to come up over and over in our week together. The foundation from which these burning questions are asked is the biblical understanding of faith, and it is this. Behavior reveals belief. Okay, those three words together are really important. What you do, that's what I mean by behavior, demonstrates who you put your faith in. You can say that you believe in Jesus with your mouth, but it is your actions which reveal the truth. You know that adage, actions speak louder than words? James would actually modify it to say, actions speak instead of words. It's very important to speak. I, I would not be a, a preacher if I didn't believe that. But here James is teaching us that who you believe in is revealed, first of all, in how you behave. And so the behaviors of the communities that he addresses are revealing a dangerous disbelief in Jesus. And please understand, this does not mean that now James is wondering whether they're saved. There's no anxiety in James's heart about that. He knows that his brother died for them and therefore their salvation has been settled and secured. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant everything that needs to be done and accomplished for reconciliation. That's why elsewhere Paul could write, we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Jesus died and was raised for you to secure your salvation, but now the question is, will you live for the one who died and was raised for you? And that's also, I think, in James's mind here. When it comes to belief, it is your behaviors which reveal who you believe in, and you and I will often need to be renewed in our belief. Over and over again, we'll have to come back, and we'll have to say, uh, okay, hold on a minute, am I really believing or not? Now here, let me clarify with three 
uh, points of clarification. And, and let me just add this as an aside. When I preach over there, you only get three points, right? When I preach in Bible hour, it's like 17 points. So, <laughs> all right? Okay, so here's point three of sub point four. Uh, point one of sub point four, excuse me. These are, these are th this is sort of clarification about belief. Here's the first one. I'm going to give you three. Belief in the Bible is always a relationship word. Always. So when I ask, who you, what you believe is revealed in how you behave, uh, this is about relationship. It, this is remarkable. In all of the Hebrew scriptures, okay, in every one of the Hebrew scriptures, not once, never, is the object of belief ever a fact. It never is. All through the Hebrew scriptures, belief is never, ever something that a person says, I believe in, and then an ideology, or a religious viewpoint, or a doctrine. Not one time. People have thoughts and convictions about propositional statements, but they never believe in them. And it is exactly the same in the New Testament. Instead, belief is always a matter of uh, a relationship that you choose to engage in. So the question of whether one believes in God or not is never, first of all, a question about which ideas you accept, but instead, it's a question about what kind of relationship you are choosing to have with God. Amen. So when I say this morning that behavior reveals belief, I'm challenging you to ask of yourself, and no one else is going to ask this for you, about your relationship with God. And what are you choosing right now? What are you choosing to, to be in relationship with God according to? And, and, and the answer will be revealed in your behaviors, but, but let's dig beneath that and, and let the Bible push us, because this is the way the Bible operates, to see faith as a relationship between us and the personal God. If you're saying, I believe in God, I want to believe in God, and you should this morning, then you're saying, I choose a particular relationship with God. Belief is that kind of choice. That's first. Secondly, here's the second thing about belief. Belief in the Bible is total. It's never partial. All right? Now, now this, if this stings a little bit, fine. Let it sting. When you're invited to have a particular kind of relationship with God, what you're invited to is something completely total, not something partial. You can't Believe in God with this foot and believe in someone else with that foot. That's an image that's used in Ezekiel. You can't walk on two paths at once when it comes to God. Listen to this phenomenal passage from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 7, 9. Uh, Isaiah says this. Um, oh, that's 6, 9. Isaiah says, If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, it's a question of all or nothing when it comes to belief according to the scriptures. It's complete and total surrender. Uh, yesterday when we listened to Romans 12.1, it is the determination to say, I will regard myself as a living sacrifice, which is complete and total. And belief is like that. That's second. One more. Thirdly, belief in, in the scriptures as trust is again and again rather than once and for all. Uh, you've heard the distinction. People ask it often. Uh, is that person a believer or not? We, we use that sometimes. Oh, they're not a believer. Well, the truth about everyone who is a believer is that person needs to become a believer again and again because with our 
walking away from God, we say, I don't believe right now. And we need to become a believer again and again. And that also is the scriptural vision of belief. It is total trust, which is dynamic, and it has to happen over and over again with each new season and indeed with each step that a person takes. Belief needs to become that... Uh, decision to uh, completely be in the right kind of relationship with God and to totally give yourself to God over and over again. That conception of belief is what's beneath James's challenging questions. And now it's time for all of us to engage in honest self-assessment. And that's what I'm asking of you right now, to look at yourself and be honest and ask the question, who do I believe in? And to look for the answer that hides in the way that you behave. And again, this is not to condemn yourself, but this is to enable room for the refiner's fire to burn away the dross that is in you, and that will build up, and has been building up in this year especially, and will build up this afternoon and again tomorrow. And so here are some questions that you, uh, that here are some suggestions that might enable you to be honest with yourself. Are you a person who is hypocritical sometimes? And you don't have to answer aloud. Um, actually, let me put these as indicative statements. You are hypocritical sometimes. You are insecure, and that makes you be insincere with the people whose opinions you care about. To, to make them like you more, you pretend to be someone that you're not really. You are sometimes dishonest to look more impressive. You can sometimes be duplicitous. Giving to this person and taking from them and then doing the opposite in the other direction. You hold other people to higher standards than you would want to be held to yourself. Uh, sometimes you are very unfair in your criticism of others in a way that you would bristle at if they criticized you. You can be judgmental. Even against people for being judgmental. <laughs> when you are stressed, you become aggressive. If you're thinking right now, this list doesn't apply to me at all. Listen, this list is my assessment of myself. That's what this is. I, I, I tried to ask with my own way of being, Christian, who do you really believe in? And this is what I came up with for me. Now, I don't condemn myself because Jesus does not condemn me at all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can see a lot of you know that passage. But listen, there is now and always will be refining for those who are in Christ Jesus. There should be. So that, so that the craftsman has a, a material that, that he can work with for the vessel that he's making out of you and out of me. What do your behaviors, and this should be completely personal for you, what do your behaviors reveal about who you believe in if you are only kind to those who can give you something in return? Then it reveals that you believe in yourself as if you're the most important person in the world, and you are God, but you're not God. If you never rest and never stop working, it, it means that 
achievement or possessions or money is your God and not the God who says, I will give you all things, trust me, and, and rest. If you are self-conscious, obsessed with your physical appearance, uh, then it's whatever, uh, whatever particular vision of physical beauty that has been presented to you and is oppressing you that has become your God. If you're always trying to accomplish more to feel valuable or to win approval or whatever it is, each one of these is a little red flag to tell you, here's who you're believing in right now. And, and, and here's the thing. If James were with us in Bible Hour right now and sitting there, he couldn't contain himself. Right now is where he would stand up and he would plead with you, do not believe in any of those false gods anymore. And he would say, instead, please believe in my brother. He is the true God. He is God with us. I didn't, James would say this, at some point in my life, I didn't believe it. Now I know it's true. Oh, believe in him by trusting in him. Trust in him today. If you would just th throw yourself into his love and his mercy, uh, you would find uh, the life that he made you for. If you've done that in the past, it's time for you to do that again. Believe, and, and if you've believed before and, and wandered, come back and throw yourself 100% into my brother's arms because he is the true God and you should believe in him. I w when I was in Switzerland, I was so fortunate as a graduate student to get to go to Switzerland for a few months in the summer of 2000 uh, uh, to study there. Has anyone here ever been to Switzerland? Has anyone been to the city of Bern? Bern is a magnificent old city and there's a, uh, there's a river that runs around it. And it comes from the Alps, and so it's blue, as blue as a sapphire crystal, like your shirt. And it, it's rough, and it runs through the city. And in the summertime, it gets very, very hot in Bern. And I was there in August, and I walked down to the banks of that river because I thought, maybe I can get into that river and get some relief. But the banks were really steep. And I wasn't willing to take the risk to climb down. And after all, it also was very fast flowing. But it just looked so inviting. There were four young men, I think they were locals to Basel, who walked up beside me as I was standing on the rail right there at the steep drop off on the bank. And they looked at me, they took off their shoes, they took off their shirts, they climbed over the rails, and they just threw themselves right into the river. And they disappeared under the, the rapids. And I, I thought, oh my gosh. And then I watched a while down the river, they emerged. And they looked so joyful and so relieved and so happy. And they just flowed down for a while. They climbed out and they came and they did it again. I was too afraid to do it. But faith, belief in Jesus and trust is like an invitation to just throw yourself into that cool and dangerous river like that. And what God wants is for you to do that. To just come and say, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to do it. I'm throwing myself into Jesus. That's what he wants. When you believe in Jesus, when you do, your behavior changes from the kind of behavior that favors some and rejects others on those kinds of categories, and it looks different. And, and even though we've got, we've got three minutes, I'm going to give you four ways it looks different. <laughs> All right? Okay, here's the first one. And they're very simple. You be, first of all, goodness describes the kind of behavior that flows out of you. It's a very broad term. You know how people will often say, oh, some people think that being a Christian just means a good being a good person. It's not that. It's about this and so on. And it is about all those other things. But it's also about being a good person. Frankly speaking, the world needs to see goodness in us 
And that's what a person who hangs around Jesus ends up looking like, a person who is good. Okay, so that's the first thing. If you believe in Jesus, who was good, you become a person who is good. In Galatians 6.10, here's what Paul says. Whenever you have an opportunity, whenever you have an opportunity, work for the good of all, and especially for those who are in the family of faith. And so that means that if we are believing in Jesus, we should especially be good to one another, those in the family of faith, and it's very hard to be good to the people in your family, don't you think? Right? You can be really nice out there, but, but let's think of our family of faith, which includes us who are here and like Bible Hour, and the people who are too liberal or too conservative or whatever label we want to put on them to become a part of Bible Hour. You're supposed to be good to them too. So that's first goodness. Here's second characteristic. When you believe in Jesus, you become a person who is also full of kindness. I cannot overemphasize how clearly kindness in a person reveals a heart that is trusting in Jesus. Just as the opposite is true, when a person is cruel and mean-spirited and unkind, in that moment that person is very far away from Jesus and barely believing in Jesus at all. And it's easy to be kind to some people. Hey, I have one more minute. Those bells are saying otherwise. <laughs> Take two? Okay. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, listen to what's written. God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus said that. So we should be kind and, 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 and to the ungrateful and wicked. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So that's the second characteristic that should come out of those people who are believing in Jesus. Goodness first, kindness second. Third one, humility. And again, that one is so, it's in such short supply, unfortunately, amongst people with strong religious convictions. You should have extremely strong religious convictions. You should be confident in what you believe, but you, your belief should be always um, wrapped up in humility. First uh, Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. Don't exalt yourself. Let God take care of that. Humble yourself. And that will be a third way you reveal uh, belief in Jesus. Here's the fourth way. Last one. It's trust. Because you can feel very confident in Bible hour and then out into the world out there and you'll feel uh, a lack of confidence and a lack of courage and it will be challenging in a way that you're not quite ready for but remember the river that I told you about that wraps itself around burn take the plunge right it's dangerous it's scary uh, it's it's rough but but Jesus is trustworthy and so you should be a person who trusts in him Isaiah 26.4, and I am rushing through these because of our time, but I've told you these so that maybe in your own study and reflection later today you can look at each one. Isaiah 26.4, trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord God you have an everlasting rock. Isn't that a great promise? It's a great promise and great guidance. Okay, very brief review. Who do I really believe in? That's the question for today. Let that question refine you. If you return tomorrow, there will be another burning question from our teacher, James. Sound good? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, I love you, and I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters, these friends, all of whom you've gathered this morning and, and who you've given the opportunity to hear your word and to grow in your spirit. I thank you for giving me this calling to be a pastor in this summer week to each and every one of these people here. 
Please, God, use the words that I've shared to build each one of us up, to refine us, to burn away the dross so there is material in us that is useful in your hands. Make us new. Renew us. Refine us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 All right. Love you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more about attending Bible study, worship, or additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, and for social media links, go to oceangrove.org.